I've never been the coolest kid in the world. Obviously, I don't know anything about Star Wars because um, nobody ever calls them Star Wars episode number, number, number. We always refer to them as their names. But I've never been the coolest kid. I've never worn the coolest clothes. I've never really been into the whole trends thing. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Maybe one, because I'm just so slow, I can't keep up on everything. Uh, number two, maybe I actually I just find it a little bit silly sometimes to keep up on everything. I can't, I can't stay up to date on Instagram because it's constantly changing. So I just give up. I just delete the app. Um, but um, there's, a, there's, there's kind of a, a, there's lots of little Christian cool trends that always go around. And, and maybe I don't get into them because of the way I am. And maybe I don't get into them because of actual good reasons. It's hard to tell sometimes. But um, I would say there, there's one trend that's out there in the world. And I don't think you guys really uh, are suckers for this, this trend. But it's, it's the idea of a, of a life verse, right? This is a verse that encompasses all of my life. And I, I find it to be a Christian trend, which can or can't be helpful. I've, I've seen some people that, that kind of um, find a lot of benefit. But there's, re- there's various reasons why I never get too excited about the idea or the concept of having a life verse. By the way, if you don't know what a life verse is, it's, it's one verse that you've kind of decided for yourself. This is the, the verse that's most going to shape my life and my, 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 my Christian life. This is how I'm going to describe it. I'm always going to think of this verse first when I think about my conversion, my salvation, my, my walk with Christ, however you want to talk about it. And lots of people enjoy these things. I mean, I just looked up a, a couple websites the other day, just kind of looking at it, and, and people are like, this is helpful. It encourages you. It makes you feel closer to God. But there are various reasons why I don't really get too excited about life verses, um, and I'll give you a few of these reasons. First off, a, a life verse, and I'm not saying you can't have one, I'm just saying these are reasons why I never get too excited. A life verse is always very subjective. It's, it, it's, it's you opening up your Bible and saying, this makes me feel about me really good. That's usually what a life verse is, if you kind of pull them all together. They're those verses that people like to put up on their you know, walls or, or post on their social media sites. It, it usually has a lot to do with you and how you perceive God to be feeling about you, perhaps. Um, it also has, has, has kind of a lot to do with just how you feel in that moment. That doesn't make me very excited. Too subjective in my mind. Another reason why I don't get too excited about life verses, uh, they are not required or commanded or even suggested to us in Scripture that you should go out there and find one verse out of all 3,700 3, of them um, and pick that one to be your verse above all other verses. Matter of fact, I think this might unnecessarily distract you from the verses that God wants you to listen to. You're so obsessed about this one verse that perhaps you're going to miss the clear verses that God has for you. For, for example, that's, that's my reason number three. I think having one verse that you, you say, this is, this is my verse more than any others, will actually um, distract you from actual verses that Jesus wants you to own and possess for yourself. For example, I never see people that have life verses on you know, 1 John 5.21, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Nobody ever 
chooses that verse as their life verse. Nobody ever chooses 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Never seen that on an Instagram post or anything. And I've never seen anybody um, claim uh, that verse from John 3 that John John the Baptist uses where he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's never a life verse. Uh, Once again, these these life verses tend to be very subjective and, and elevating me and making me feel good. And the typical argument is, hey, if it, if it encourages me, if it makes me feel good about my relationship with God, why is it wrong? And, and there, it might not be wrong, but, but those are, once again, just three reasons right there why I don't get too excited about life verses. Another reason you could put down is, I think they are quickly chosen, too quickly chosen. People tend to figure out their life verse very early on in their Christian walk before they've actually walked for very long. And then how do you know what God's plan or purpose is? Maybe it would be good at the end of your life, if you're still conscious, to go back over your life and say, man, what what verse most characterizes my life? But usually they're chosen early. Um, and my biggest problem, my biggest problem with life verses is, is this final reason. They are always always taken out of context. Always. You, you know you're setting yourself up for problems when you say one verse. I'm going, to, I'm going to associate everything about my Christian life in one verse. You're probably going to take that one verse out of context. And it, it, it's a little bit ironic, I admit. I mean, you'd think uh, if you had just one verse in your life, you'd take time to study the context and understand the flow of argument that's attached to that verse. But people rarely do. And for example, I mean, these are obvious examples that you probably know yourself. The usual culprits are two verses, Jeremiah 29.11 and Philippians 4.18. Oh, man. Oh, man. I love both of these verses, but they always seem to be used way out of context. For example, you probably know this one. Now you're probably covering up the sticker on your water bottle as we speak. Philippians 4.18, you know that passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I hate to say it, but in context, that's not actually telling you that you're going to be the greatest tennis player of all time. I know this is a shock, but that's not actually what it's talking about in context. But if you look at it in context, you actually see it's talking about something far more extraordinary and far more uh, out of the ordinary. A, a typical person takes this verse and says, wow, this enables me to do whatever I want to do. But actually in context, you know what Paul's talking about there? It's not about his tennis career. It's not about his track meet career. It's not about his business that's flourishing. Paul is saying, I can be content with less than anybody else has because all that Christ has given me is enough for me, right? I can be content with going without things because I have everything that I need to faithfully follow Christ and obediently proclaim the gospel, right? Paul, Paul, that's a verse saying, I can do all things that are unpleasant through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure hard things through Christ who strengthens me. That's actually a great verse, but it's never never taken that way. It's always taken, I find, out of context. Or there's the other culprit, Jeremiah 20, 9, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Once again, a wonderful, sweet verse, but I rarely think that the people that claim these things for themselves realize that this is a verse actually talking to Israel, who is currently being disciplined by the Lord through exile in Babylon, 
And God is reminding them of the promises he made to them, which are irrevocable, the blessings that he wants to give to the world through Abraham. And so God is not saying, hey, I'm going to make your life wonderful and blessed for you. I'm going, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant promises so that my promises to Abraham can be fulfilled and in, in, in Israel can, can be resulted in a blessing for the nations. Now, that's no fun to put that on your refrigerator, perhaps, but I think that's much more encouraging. It's much more centered in God. But once again, you have to read that verse in context to even begin to understand that. And once again, that's kind of my problem with life verses. You, you kind of snatch them out, and then as soon as you snatch out those verses out of their context, you miss all of the things that are leading up to that verse and all of the, the application that God wants you to take from that verse. So if I could tell you anything, read everything around those verses that you like so much. Dedicate yourself to understanding what the flow of the argument is. One, one of my favorite things these days in youth ministry is just reading through massive pieces of Scripture and just trying to understand it as a whole. What, what does Philippians mean as a whole? What is the Gospel of Matthew arguing as a whole? Well, what, is, what is the book of Psalms trying to drive you to as a whole? Right? What are the, how do these little pieces make up the big, the big point of the book? That's, that's one of my favorite things to do. And the more and the more I read the Bible, the richer individual verses um, become because I see them more in the whole. And that's really what I want to instill in you. Not a, not a faith that's dependent on little verses taken out of context, but a faith that's enriched and strengthened to, to hold fast to truth and to draw near to God. That's what I want for you. Now, all that being said, I actually do have a, a favorite verse. I don't know if I would actually call it a life verse, but I do have a favorite verse. And it occurred to me, I've got a few favorite verses. As a matter of fact, in two weeks from now, I'm going to give you my other favorite verse. So you'll, you'll understand how this happens. But um, it occurred to me that a lot of you apparently don't know my favorite verse. We were at a first watch meeting and and Brandon Brummett was like, who who knows Pastor David's favorite verse? And nobody knew it. You guys thought it was like first Peter three eighteen, you guys thought it was Luke nine twenty three for some strange reason. I don't know why I think that. Uh, but nobody knew what my favorite verse was, even though it's on my email. Duh. Uh, but so I'm going to share it with you now, and we're going to just talk through it. And what I'm going to try to do is just show you why I love it so much, and and a lot of the reasons why I love it is because of everything that comes before it and everything that follows after it. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter seven. It's tucked away in the letter to the Hebrews. It, it's tucked away in the heart of the letter to the Hebrews, though. This is one of the. The, 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 this is the central portion of the letter where the, the author is really unpacking, unpacking the, the rich truths of the supremacy of Christ and trying to exhort uh, believers to obey him. Um, it, it could easily be taken out of context. As a matter of fact, as I was studying it this last week, I was like, wow, that doesn't mean exactly what maybe it could be thought to mean on face value. So it's very interesting to me. Um, but let's just approach the letter a little bit as a whole here before we jump into the details of this one verse. As you may recall from several sermons that I've done in Hebrews, Hebrews is a hard book. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, it has a lot of things going on. It, the, the author of Hebrews is unknown to us, although this author is closely connected to Paul could be Paul. 
but I'll just stay closely connected to Paul. You get that information from the end of Hebrews. Um, but ultimately, what is the letter to the Hebrews? Uh, chapter 13, verse 22, tells us that this is a word of exhortation. So what does Hebrews have to do with your life? Why should you read and understand and know Hebrews? Why is any verse from Hebrews good for you? Because it's going to offer you encouragement. It's going to exhort you in your life. It's going to provide you great encouragement for for two results. This is an encouragement that will result in endurance. You're going to hold fast to your faith when when, when you take to heart the letter of Hebrews. And it's also going to encourage you to draw near to God. It's going, to, it's going to result in a life that is stable, one that holds fast, and a life that is in close relationship with God. That is the, the purpose of the letter to Hebrews, to cause you to hold fast and to draw near. How does the author accomplish this, whoever he is? Well, it's strange, maybe, perhaps to you. It seems a little strange, at least initially in the letter to the Hebrews. He basically argues that Jesus is better. And this is perhaps what throws people off initially, and and maybe perhaps why people like us, who are detached a little bit uh, from the biblical world, world, don't necessarily see the immediate application of a letter like Hebrews. But basically, the writer starts out by saying, you should be encouraged to hold fast to Christ and to draw near to God through him because Jesus is better than angels. What? And and to you, you're like, I wasn't struggling with that, but okay, thank you. But that's where he begins. He begins in verse, uh, uh, just in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, let me read it for you. This is about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's an amazing depiction of Christ. Um, And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The, The basic idea of the letter to Hebrews is contrast. The writer is going to make contrast after contrast after contrast to insist that you see Jesus as better. That verse, verse 4 there in chapter 1 may be translated superior as it does in ESV. It's better in the LSB. Christ, you are to see Christ as better than any other, other religious form, any other religious experience. Christ is better. He is superior. That word there, better, superior, it's repeated all throughout the letter to the Hebrews. It, it refers to something that's high in status, that's prominent, that's high in rank, that's preferable that's better you could you could say it like this the, the author the author is is making a, an argument of comparison to to show these believers the the what's best so for example if you were um, trying to talk to someone from let's say Minnesota and you were trying to explain to them um, the best hamburger experience in the world, you would first need to argue to them that McDonald's isn't the very best hamburger in the world that you can eat. 
But that's because they've never experienced In-N-Out Burger, or some of you may be the habit, whatever you want to go, however you want to go with that argument. But the, the point is that you would need to make arguments for why this is better than that. And that's what the author is trying to do. He's trying to show that Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. And then there's two key words. I kind of hinted at these a little bit earlier, but there, there's two key verbs, exhortations, imperative, commands that the, the writer to the Hebrews wants these people to do as a result of holding fast to Christ. Uh, well, number one, he wants them to hold fast. This is a, a word, a verb that re, uh, appears throughout the letter. For example, in Hebrews four fourteen through 16, let us hold fast our confession. This refers to holding something tightly, almost like possessing it with your own hands, uh, uh, taking it on as, as your own very possession. Uh, maybe you are struggling with all sorts of things, but the, the, the antidote, the answer to your life that you need is to hold on to Christ as better than anything else. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews really wants to do. Jesus is better, better than any popularity or friendship that you can find. Jesus, you need to see him and possess him and hold him as better than any career attainments, any money in your bank account. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any any other temptation or desire that you may be tempted to pursue, right? This is what the writer wants you to do. He wants you to hold fast to Jesus as better than all of them. This That's the first verb, hold fast. Possess it as your own. Another verb command, drawn near. If you see Christ as better, you will hold fast to him as better than anything else, and you will also draw near to God through him. Here's a news flash for you. Nearness to God is the best thing that can ever happen to you. Nearness to God is your good. All of the history of religion is, how can I be near to God? All of the Old Testament is is showing you that nearness to God is the state of blessing, joy, happiness, satisfaction. And through Christ, and through Christ alone, because He is supreme, you can draw near to God like never before. Not just for a, a moment in time like they could in the Old Testament, but continually. You can draw near to God continually and be near to God. And in the nearness of God, you find your good. There is no better way to find grace, mercy, help in any of your needs in this life than by being near to God. That's the, that's the two leading encouragements. That's the result of knowing Christ is better. How does the author break this down? Sorry, once again, I'm just trying to help you understand. He, I would break down Hebrews into three simple parts. Three super simple parts. Um, arguments for, the, for what Jesus is better than. Number one, in, in verses... Uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 4.13, the author shows us that Jesus is the better messenger. He's the better person. He's the better um, go-between, you and God, right? He makes these comparisons between Jesus and angels, who are messengers of God, Jesus and Moses, who is also a messenger of God. And in the end, he says, Jesus is better. Matter of fact, here's here's a verse that I think perhaps we misunderstand often. At the very end of this section in 4.11, 
all the way through 13, he refers to Jesus as the Word of God. And I don't think he's actually speaking about your Bibles there when he's saying the Word of God is sharp, two-edged. He's referring to Jesus Christ himself. He is the better messenger. He is the better person. But you better be careful with him because he can expose every aspect of your sin. He sees everything. That's what it's talking about there in verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He is the word of God that cuts, right? That's what the word of God does in our life. But that's what Jesus also is able to do in our lives through the Word of God. Jesus is the better messenger of God. But but then the second section, the heart, the meat of the letter, the middle portion of the letter, 4.14 all the way through 10.18, the author argues that Jesus holds a better ministry. Now, I'm lumping a ton into that title. Jesus holds a better ministry. Or you could say it this way. Jesus holds a better ministry priestly ministry. He, he argues for all sorts of things. Jesus is of a better priestly line in chapter 7. Uh, Jesus functions very much like the Levites, he tells us in chapter 5, but he is superior to the Levites because he's from a different priestly order, as it says in chapter 7. Uh, Jesus is a minister of a better covenant, he tells us in chapter 8. A covenant that is eternal, a covenant that's not just do this, do that, but it's God putting his laws into our minds and our hearts. It's God transforming us from the inside out so that we can, want to, desire to obey the word of God. That is the new covenant, the splendor of the new covenant. And Jesus is a minister of a far better covenant than the old. Jesus is also a minister in a better tent. He says that in the beginning of chapter 9. And then Jesus is a minister with a better sacrifice. He says halfway through 9, all the way through 10, verse 18. Jesus has and holds a better ministry. That is the second argument. He's a better better messenger, but he also holds a better ministry. And then in chapter 10, 19, all the way through 12, 29, Jesus provides us in conclusion with better privileges, better privileges than, than the old covenant system, than any other religion can offer you. Jesus offers you the best privileges before God. Now remember those verbs that I was telling you about, those exhortations? Once again, notice in the key movements of the letter, where it shifts from one section to the next, in 4, 14 through 16, we see both of those commands. Let us hold fast. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Notice there's, an, there's, a, there's a packing of the commands. Then in the other big transition, in, in 10, 19, through 25, we see these commands packed together again. Once again, this is what he wants uh, the result to be. What happens when you see Christ as better than anything else, than ever any other form of getting close to and staying close to God? You will do these two things. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God, verse 20, to let us draw near with true heart, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us then consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is setting up. This is setting up the section on the better privilege that the Christian has. Notice, what do you have? You can draw near to God with a true heart of faith. You, can, you should hold fast to your confession without wavering. Why? Because it is so faithful. The confession is faithful. He who promised is faithful. We should consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds because this privilege is so high. Right? The, the greater the privilege, the greater the danger, the greater the sorrow for missing such a wonderful privilege as what we are given in Christ Jesus. So, here we are. There I just kind of summarized the whole letter. Kind of. Briefly. Do you want a faith that will never give up and never give in? Do you want a faith that is continually receiving mercy and grace and help and strength in times of need. Do you want those things? Do you want those things in your life? Do you want your faith to be different? Do you want it to continue? Do you want it to continually be drawing on help? Then you need to know the person, the priesthood, and the privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus. That is what the letter to Hebrews really wants to do. And this brings us to my quote-unquote favorite verse in the Bible. It is chapter 7, verse 25. If you ever have written to me an email, this is what it says. And notice, you can tell there's a lot more going in here than just this verse. You can see there's a context that's surrounding it. Verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How does Jesus' priesthood provide you with encouragement to hold fast and to draw near to God? We're going to look at three, three, three ways that Jesus' priesthood encourages you to hold fast and draw near. If you want a faith that doesn't shift, if, if you want a faith that receives grace and help, you need to know these three ways in which Christ's priesthood is better. Uh, number one, number, number one reason that I have here in this verse uh, for why Christ's priesthood encourages us to draw near and hold fast. Number one, Jesus' priesthood is indestructible. Jesus' priesthood is indestructible. That's an important question to ask when you're buying something of value, right? I'm not talking about when you are buying a toy from Goodwill, but when you're buying something massive, life-changing, when you're buying a new house, when you're deciding on a career, when you're deciding to purchase a new car, perhaps, when you are going into a marriage, you want to know, is this going to quickly be destructible? Is this going to wear out fast? Is this not going to be worth the investment? Jesus, Jesus' present priesthood, his ministry, right now today, for his believers, is an indestructible office. And you see that there. Kind of, kind of, this is drawing on everything that the, the author has been saying before this, but you see that there in those words, consequently, he is able. 
Side note, Abel is the main verb of this entire verse. He's, he's talking about the ability of Jesus that is better than other priests. And then the word there consequently is a logical inference that he's making on previous statements. Uh, and he's making a contrast intentionally with the priests that, that were in the Old Testament with Jesus' priesthood. He's saying, this man is different for this reason that we already talked about. And notice, how is he making this comparison? Verse 23 says this, Former priests, those Old Testament priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So here's the problem. We had these Old Testament priests, which were great, but they couldn't continue. Why? Because they were destructible. They died. They couldn't continue in office. A new priest took over for them, and it was the son of that priest, and he was a messed up son, right? Remember the story of um, Eli in the beginning of 1 Samuel, right? Eli was kind of a lazy priest. I mean, that's putting it nice. He was fat because he was living high on the hog based on his evil sons, right? And, and, but he was fairly, he was fairly uh, sensitive to God, at least, where, where God would actually send a prophet to him. But Eli had these terrible sons. Can you imagine, can you imagine being in Israel and saying, okay, our representative before God is Eli? Not too great. He's kind of a little distracted by what he can get out of the deal. But at least we've got somebody that can go in before God and, and kind of make sacrifices for sin. But then Eli dies. Actually, because he was so fat, he fell over backwards and cracked his head open. But when Eli dies, who takes over for Eli? His sons. Well, technically, he died because he heard his sons die, uh, died in battle. But, you know, like, but what, what kind of existence would it be like to say, my main representative before God is this man over here who might be good, he might be bad, but as soon as he dies, it's a toss-up for who I get next, right? Because it's a very weak, uh, very destructible priesthood. That's what it was before. This was your... This was your this was your mediator before God. This is the one who prayed for you. And sometimes it was a very weak, weak, weak display of prayers, for sure. Verse 23 talks about how they were limited and prevented by death. But then notice, it makes a contrast there between those former priests and, and Jesus' priesthood. In verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Oh, what's the contrast here? He's, he's already been making an argument in, in the first four chapters of Hebrews about how Christ is better. How is Christ better? Well, he's, he's, he's in a better exalted position, but also one of the things he says is Christ never fades. He's indestructible. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is the power of the person of Christ. He remains the same. It says at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that means the way Jesus felt about you and thinks about you yesterday are the, is the same way he thinks and feels about you today. 
And the way Jesus thinks about you today is also the same way he will think about you in the future. And how does he think about you? Not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of his better, superior sacrifice on your behalf. That is how Jesus thinks about you, and he continues forever. Christ is the same. Unlike these priests who were many, he is one. That is the contrast there in verse 24. He doesn't need a son to take over in his place. It's not a toss-up for the priest you're going to get next. He continues forever for you on your behalf before God. And that leads him to say in verse 25, Consequently, this leads to a conclusion he is able to save. It is an indestructible salvation that he offers. They were weak. They were unable, but he is able. He has a life that is indestructible. Let's look at another reason why Jesus' priesthood is encouraging for us today. Jesus' priesthood is unfailing. It says in verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost. I love that word. It, it, means, it means completely, you'll see there in a footnote perhaps, or at all times. The, the words literally that make up this word to the uttermost is to every end. His saving strength is available without end. His grace reaches further than your sin can outpace Him, right? He is able to save to the uttermost. His grace will bring you all the way home through His prayers and His intercession for you. We see wonderful examples of Jesus' intercessory ministry in the Gospels, and we can only guess, like, this is just a picture and a piece of what we do have right now presently with Jesus in heaven, his unfailing ministry. With Peter, remember Peter was so puffed up about himself and how he was never going to fail the Lord. But Jesus says, actually, I happen to know that the devil has asked for you to sift you like wheat, but don't worry, Peter, I didn't let him. I prayed for you instead. Your life, your, your continuing in salvation is very, in a sense, de- uh, dependent on Jesus praying for you and not leaving you to your own devices. Or there's those beautiful words from our Lord in, in John 17. This is, this is the, the longest prayer of Jesus that we ever find in the Bible, and it reveals him as an intercessor for his own people. And it, it's wonderful. And, and if, you could, if you could put one word over this entire chapter, it would be assurance, blessed assurance, right? Because Jesus is mine, and he prays this way for me. Verse 12, for example, in in John 17, he prays that the Father would keep his people. While I was with them, he said, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. Look at that. He has kept them in the Father's name, and, and he even... The, the Father even is also responsible for keeping his own people. Verse 17, he prays for our sanctification, and sanctification comes to us through the truth of God's word. And then I really love verse 24, 
Um, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is Jesus' intercessory prayer ministry. He is saying, Father, I want these to come all the way to heaven. I want these to come all the way to the end. Father, I want you to keep them and help them, give them grace and strength in times of need to bring them all the way home. That's a wonderful thought that Jesus is praying that way presently for his own right now. But jumping back to Hebrews 7. One final encouragement about Jesus' present priestly ministry uh, Jesus' ministry is, is not just indestructible. It's not just unfailing. It is also welcoming. And, and, this is, and this is how you really see the difference between someone who truly belongs to Jesus and someone who doesn't. Uh, for, for someone who doesn't belong to Jesus, this last point is, is irrelevant. This, this makes no sense. But a true believer who has had their heart changed from the inside out, this is a wonderful news. And this is wonderful hope that can be found in Jesus. Notice in, in chapter 7, verse 25, the, the final part, right? He is able to save to the uttermost, completely to the end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice, because Christ Jesus stands at the presence, at the, at the hand, right hand of God, we can confidently, boldly draw near to God through him. The way to God is always open. Now, no, now be careful here. This is not a picture of an angry God and, and a whimpering uh, priest before God saying, just please forgive them this time, let them back in, let them back in, Dad. That's not the picture we see here, right? We, we see Jesus praying. For mercy and grace to his people, to a God who has chosen those same people out of love. Right? This is a, a two-part uh, two-part combo of love towards the redeemed people. And what does this what does this do to us? This encourages us to draw near to God with bold assurance because we know that we are welcomed. Right? The the story of the prodigal son comes to mind, right? The son is returning home, and he has only an expectation that his father is going to reject him, be angry at him, and make him do a lot of hard labor for the rest of his life because he is so angry. But that wasn't the picture that he discovered when he got home, was it? He found a father that was willing to take shame on himself to welcome his son back into his arms. And in here, what's the picture we have? Every time we go to God in prayer, we have a picture of a father who loves us and a son who is praying for us as our, as our elder brother, praying us all the way into God's presence. We know that we are welcomed here. And this is something that the believer wants. When I sin, when I feel guilty, when I'm upset at myself for messing up again, will God welcome me here? Yes, because Christ Jesus is at God's right hand, and he is able to save to the uttermost. He is constantly there, and through him we can draw near to God in hearts full of faith. And this, of course, leads us to, you know, where he's heading with this letter, right? The greater Christian privilege, right? Your welcome 
is as fixed before God as Christ's life continues before God. As long as Christ lives, hint, hint, forever, you are welcomed before God. Your access to grace never fails, never changes. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if anything, if you, if you look over at Hebrews 12, Jesus is looking forward to the cross, but he's willing to endure the cross because of the joy that is set before him. And I would argue that that is a joy in his ministry at the right hand of God. You could even say this, right? His ministry of helping weak, sinning, failing Christians is his joy to do. And what does that do in our hearts, in our minds? Even when I'm at the lowest, even when I feel so stupid, I am welcomed before God because Christ is there already praying for me. Even before I failed, he was praying for me. And he is eager for me to draw near to God through him. That is why he is there. Now you want to be careful there. And this is where I said you could easily take something out of context here. right? He always lives to make intercession for me. Perhaps you could think, wow, this is Jesus' life purpose. It's not a life verse, but it's his life purpose, right? He always is continually living with a life focused on me. That's actually not what it's saying, is it? It's not that Christ's identity is swallowed up in me. This is not a me-first mentality like kind of idea like Jesus is constantly, constantly living for my sake. That's not what the verse is saying there. Notice the encouragement is on Christ's ability to help. He is constantly living. He is constantly able to save me. He never needs retirement. He never ends. He never grows tired or blinks or misses something that I have or a need that I have in my life. He never misses a moment of my life, good or bad. He never misses any of it. And he is never outmatched by my problems either. Because why? He is continually able, continually living. He is exalted at the right hand of God as God the Son. And now he is able to help me come all the way home. That, that's what the point of the verse is. Not a, not a Jesus focused on me, but a Jesus exalted at the right hand of God with a ministry of joy in pr- praying for me. Or you can think about it this way. Your security before God is not based on your, your feelings Uh, Your life, how well you think you are doing, but your security before God is based on Christ's continual station at God's right hand. That is our security. That is where actual assurance comes from, doesn't it? That's where assurance comes from. Assurance of salvation is not seen in, hey, how well am I doing today? Assurance of salvation is found in, hey, who am I pursuing? Who who am I drawing near towards? That's where assurance of salvation is. Is found. How close can I get to God through Christ? How much of Christ's grace, mercy, and strength can I find in Him today? How much, how much can I not rely on myself and trust in my own wisdom and my own strength to do something, but actively rely and live based on His grace and strength that He gives to me? That is, that is the truth and the wonderful sweetness of Christ's priesthood before God for us. Let me read, our, let me read that verse one more time. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for um, this passage of Scripture that is a delight especially when it's understood in its flow and in its context. And I pray that you would help us all to be better readers of the Bible and, and better thinkers through the Bible's help. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.